This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of April 6, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to a special episode of Defender Radio. They are our best friends, our family, and our own personal heroes. Dogs have become a part of everyday life for millions of Canadians, from sharing our homes and our time to our pillows and our hearts. With so many people profiting from this companionship and our quest to perfect the relationships between ourselves and our pets, there's sure to be some bad eggs. Little dogs with big barks, as it were. And then there are those who rely on modern science coupled with compassion to find the truth about dogs and how we can live fulfilling lives for both us and our canine companions. One such modern savior of dog lovers is Jean Donaldson. Born in Montreal, Jean has become known as an authority on dog training and behavior through her ongoing study and growth, both of the practice and the science of her trade. Jean joined Defender Radio for a special 50-minute interview to talk about dogs, the evolution of behavior models from B.F. Skinner to Walt Disney and beyond, breaking through the media hype of certain celebrity trainers, and she even took time to answer questions from our listeners and supporters. Let's get started with this special For the Love of Dog episode. Well, let's get started. And my favorite place to start is always at the beginning. Uh, so how did the young gal from Montreal end up as a world-famous dog trainer and author in uh, California? Boy, do you, do you want the, uh, the, the, the turning point story? Sure. It is a, it is a very sort of a, a lot of storm and drong. Um, so in, I think it was 89, um, I was sort of, I was in school, <clears throat> excuse me, I was in, just had started grad school and was thinking, okay, I'm going to either, uh, you know, go into animal welfare, or I'm just going to stay an academic or, and I had been doing dog sports on the side like crazy, just like a dog sport addict every weekend, going to dog shows, um, obedience, tracking, fly ball. Um, you know, basically competing, but didn't have much to do with uh, pet dogs. And while a student, I had uh, spent um, a summer as an adoption counselor at the Montreal SPCA, which is a, just in a really seriously overburdened shelter, especially at that time. We were on a bad day; we would we would euthanize a hundred dogs. Just huge overpopulation issue. And so I had really gotten the, the animal welfare bug. Um, anyway, so I, I attended my first uh, Ian Dunbar seminar. Um, and he, of course, is very much about pet dogs. Uh, and I had been ill for a week, and I thought that I had possibly the flu or indigestion. I wasn't sure what it was. But um, at the end of the first day of this three-day seminar, um, I was, you know, very, very ill. And I was, you know, I guess a good 12 hours from home in another province. And uh, anyway, long story short, turns out I had a ruptured appendix uh, that I hadn't attended to. Um, so I ended up uh, hospitalized for five weeks um, and nearly died. I mean, I had peritonitis, uh, gangrene in my guts, uh, the whole nine yards, really lots of complications. And while I was in hospital, I was lying there and I just numerous times had this thought, if I get to live, I'm going to do pet dog training. Um, and I got to live. And I did pet dog training. But you see, 
if if that was a story about a man, it never would have happened that way because he would have started whining immediately, <laughs> gone to the hospital and gotten it taken care of, met Ian Dunbar and gone on with life. Bad, bad stomach. Yeah, but you know, I mean, it, it, just between you and me, I mean, you know, you think, have you ever had appendicitis? I have not. Well, what what's your thinking? Your thinking is it's going to be sort of a sharp onset, acute pain, right? Mm-hmm. I had vague digestive symptoms. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was pretty sure I had the flu pretty terribly a couple of months ago. Um, and it lasted a solid eight hours until I realized I was just really hungover. Um, <laughs> so I'm really not one to talk about <laughs> self-diagnosis with. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that, that self-diagnosis is a dangerous game. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of diagnosis excellent segue to myself um your book the culture clash which is the one i have in front of me right now i we've got a couple of your other ones on uh, specific trait training um but uh, you open talking about walt disney and bf skinner uh, i know and this one is particular of interest to myself and i would think to our to our entire audience with the fur bears because we're constantly talking about anthropomorphism. We're constantly talking about science versus ethics versus emotion. Um, could you break down your your thoughts on this Walt Disney versus B.F. Skinner topic? I think that there's this mistaken idea that science, because it's cold, therefore it is um, necessarily going to have negative impact on animal welfare, um, but you know, sort of warm and fuzzy ideas um, about dogs are somehow that there's it's just bundled without you know no thought goes into this. I don't think it's, it's strictly intuitive that that is somehow about kindness, about good, about all that is wonderful, and I and I worry about that the same way as you know we worry in our society about the impact of supermodels you know who are photoshopped on young girls. You know I think that that happens to dogs to a certain extent, um, and in sort of this culture that we live in where there's not a lot of good information in the popular press about dogs, um, I think it's not to their benefit at all to overestimate certain qualities about them and to underestimate others. Uh, and I think this is huge and kind of tragic irony that if you take what's now, you know, called applied behavior analysis, which is where you really sort of break down behavior and try to, um, you know, the more sophisticated practitioners um, out there, try to modify behavior and give the animal an enriched environment where we really are sensitive to, okay, so what is this species and what do they need? And how can we try to not wipe things out of their life? And how can we make them not have to live in fear? And, you know, can we recognize when they are fearful in the first place. To me, that seems far more sensitive and far more um, kind than to assume that they're just like us, to assume that they're trying to put one over on us, to try and sort of keep in their place, and then to spin narratives um, about how that's sort of in their interest. And um, I find that sort of almost kind of creepy mm -hmm. in a way. Well, and it's it's very interesting uh, reading through your your discussion on this in the books, um, because you take arguably one of the more brilliant psychologists of the last hundred years, 
um, and, you know, one of the fathers of behaviorism, and you compare him to Walt Disney, um, which, yeah, I kind of find amusing on the face of it, but you actually do so in such a, a wonderful tone and say, he's not wrong and he's not wrong, but neither of them are right. And you, you make the point that dogs are uh, innocently selfish, selfish, sorry. Um, how, how do you explain that to a lay person? I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think the word selfish, you know, there is sort of the, the, the connotation in our society, that kind of the pejorative use of that where somebody is therefore narcissistic, or it means that they don't care about anything or they haven't got any positive emotions. Um, and I think I mean selfish kind of in the way that, you know, a five-year-old child might be sort of, you know, very, you know, simple. I mean, they're not power hungry um, and they're not really living um, this sort of this this really kind of pernicious idea that dogs primarily their their main motivation in life is to make us happy I mean I think dogs do like when we're happy um, because primarily that you know nothing bad ever happens to them um, but you know that the dog doesn't have any inherent interests the dog isn't an agent that the dog is lying on the sofa in order to sort of you know, send a message to the owner, to get back at the owner, to climb some sort of imagined hierarchy, as opposed to, well, the sofa is more comfortable than the floor, and that the dog might actually want to be comfortable, or that the dog steals a sandwich because the sandwich really tastes good. And, and dogs evolved, um, you know, the best intelligence that we have is that they evolved as scavengers. And why wouldn't they do that? And dogs like to play because it's enjoyable. Um, that if we recognize that they are these independent organisms, they're going to, you know, have function properly in the world, which means they're going to pursue um, the things that animals pursue, including us. I mean, we're animals as well, um, that we can then... It, to, to my mind, it makes it far richer, it makes it far more interesting, um, you know, to sort of acknowledge that and then see, okay, so if we do want to help them live more successfully with us, um, and we don't want it to be just this, this kind of blatant subjugation game where the dog is, you know, to, you know it, this obsession that people have with packs and with dominance and with leadership, um, as opposed to, well, what would you like this dog to do? There's some things that he does. You don't want him to pee in the house and you don't want him to be using his teeth on people, you know, etc. Are there ways to accomplish that goal that are more friendly, friendly for everybody concerned? And of course there are. Um, but to find our way to that, ironically, the way to do that is to really get into um, sort of how to modify behavior. And, you know, chapter and verse has been written on that. It really seems a, a terrible shame to not make use of that information. Definitely. And uh, one of the things I want to talk about is, is dominance. Um, and you, you sort of touched on that already. But before we move forward, there is a wonderful, joyous, smart-ass remark in the first chapter, uh, you wrote, my favorite myth is going through doorways first. What silly person came up with the notion that a dog would understand, let alone exert dominance by preceding his owner out the front door? I remember the first time I read that, and after all of discussions with, with friends of mine who are trainers, all of the people in the dog stuff, coming up with all of these lengthy explanations as to why or why not dominance is, is a thing, 
that was probably the most simplistic and easily digestible and logical answer. Um, it just, why would that occur to them? Um, how? Yeah. When you were writing something like that, and when you continue to write things like that or talk about them during seminars, how do you get that across so eloquently? I mean, again, it's it's two sentences that to me just blow apart an entire theory. It, it's tough because, you know, I, I do worry about the smart ass tone. You know, I, I, I mean, I made a decision when I first, when I wrote the first edition, which actually was harsher in tone. I remember thinking, okay, you know, I, I know there's some stuff I, I'd like to get across. Uh, and I thought that sort of the good cop version of, you know, the pitch, the pitch to can we possibly be less, you know, just absolutely crazily harsh with dogs um, and that pitch I think had been made successfully you know by Dunbar and by others uh, and I thought you know what I'll, I'll, I'll try a bit more of a bad cop maneuver and see if it it, it it you know works and I think it was very at best a mixed bag in terms of a choice um, you know I think that I mean the choir you know I think it was really good in terms of the choir rallying crying if finally somebody is saying you know is giving voice to kind of the anger I have um, about the you know the, the culture wars in dog training <clears throat> but I do think that for people who are, are not on board, I mean, you probably were self-selected. I mean, you may have come in a little more agnostic. But I think people who come in really wedded to that stuff, um, I think for them it, it probably is not effective. So the tone is, yeah. You know, um, uh, but ideas like going through doors, I think that's it's just kind of a failure of critical thinking. Um, I mean, if you sort of endow dogs with – you know the, the the fact that there's this you know, basically it requires a certain amount of what's called numeracy that the dog's got to understand order okay that that one two three four five and that being sort of first in a line somehow then implies that you are in charge I mean that that sort of you know that premise. Um, is you have to think about it. That is a premise, um, and you the fair amount of abstraction there. Um, and I think a lot of the people that you know think that have not noticed that when when people aren't there, if a door is open, a dog is going to ambulate at a certain speed. Um, you know, that's just how fast they go. They're in a rush. Most dogs, especially young dogs, you know, the ones who kind of get the, the, the worst rap in terms of, you know, trying to put one over on owners, it's just how fast they move. And if you, you know, if you tie them to us with a piece of rope, which is what a leash is, the dog is going to be out ahead. You know, they're going to naturally, they're going to hit the end of that and they're going to be ahead. So when you open the door, they're, they're going out first because they're moving faster. You know, <laughs> I mean, could it be that, you know, and the, the fact that nobody had even, entertain that as a hypothesis seemed to me that boy there's some there's some missing thinking going on here well definitely and that kind of leads nicely into something i want to broach and we we're not going to use names because i frankly don't like dealing with uh, uh lawyers when it comes to libel and slander um and, and I, i'm cheap and i don't want to spend money on lawyers um and this individual has a television show and I'm not allowed to get the National Geographic channel because of this person's uh, uh, television show on that network. You're, you're forbidden. <laughs> I, I, I have been told by the boss of this household that once this individual is no longer on National Geographic, I may get the National Geographic channel. Um, but uh, he uses what's called uh, corrections. 
And on the face of it, it seems logical. Um, you know, this is how dogs behave with each other and they're descended from wolves. And this is how wolves behave with each other. So as this manner of training very much flies in the, the face uh, of what you preach, what Dunbar preaches, what many, many other, uh, uh, behaviorists and trainers are now teaching, how do we talk to people about that? How do, how do you try and get past this uh, I, I'd almost say sort of a media started uh, firestorm over this style of training. And, and why is it bad? It's, it's a tough, that's a real tough one. I mean, you know, there's a lot of us have been at it, that, that for a long time. I mean, it's a very sticky idea. You know, it's really got tentacles in the brain. Um, you know, and I think part of it is, you know, if you go into, I guess, sort of, you know, step, take a step back and, and think, you know, so how, you know, how is an idea like that so popular? Um, and my guess is that humans are one of those species for whom status and dominance is pretty huge. Um, it does matter to humans, both in terms of sort of their immediate motivations that people do seek status, they seek prestige. Uh, and in terms of evolutionary adaptation, there is research that especially among males, that status predicts um, reproductive success. Uh, and that is across cultures. And there's various ways that status is obtained. And those things can be culturally specific. But the pursuit of status, the pursuit of dominance um, is correlated with reproductive success. Um, and so I think that it is very easy for us to then look around us. And if we see animals behaving in it at all, a kind of conflict, you know, they're, they're having conflicts with each other, that the, the obvious explanation is, well, they're so much like us. So and that's first, I would say that's sort of failed premise number one, but I think that we do tend to project that a little bit. Um, how do we get over it? I mean, and I mean, the, the problem is that it's very flawed. And I think part of it is just going to be you know, a better organized educational message from those who know. I mean, veterinary behaviors have started to, you know, become a little more vocal about this. You know, we're becoming a little more organized, but trying to get across more rational information, more up-to-date information about all the flawed premises. And one of the flawed premises is that, well, dogs are wolves. Well, you know, as it turns out, they're not. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're not wolves. <laughs> Sorry, I... So, you know, they're, they're definitely related. I mean, they're, they're related. Um, you know, the latest, you know, uh, DNA evidence is suggesting that it may have been even sort of a common ancestor to Asiatic gray wolves and, and dogs. And then there was been a huge amount of selective breeding, um, you know, and so this is a domesticated species and they're, they're not. Um, uh, the second flawed premise is that, well, dogs and wolves do this to each other. Well, actually, as it turns out, they don't. Um, a lot of the stuff that we do to dogs. Um, I think just yesterday I was having a conversation with someone about, well, shouldn't you just do this? Because that's what the mother, how the mother corrects the puppies in the litter is she takes them and she shakes them or she pins them. And I'm saying, well, I've seen an awful lot of dams with litters. And if a dam picked up a puppy and shook it or pinned it, you know, the way that people are doing that to the point of, you know, the puppy freaking out, that would be considered an abnormal behavior. I mean, it's not what they do. So we, you know, you know, we've kind of, you know, strike two, we've, you know, we've blown it there too. Um, and the third one is a little more subtle, which is that if even if they did, does it make it optimal? You know, it's kind of like saying, well, dogs roll in dead seals and, you know, and eat cow patties. Therefore, 
we should? You know, might we aspire to better? You know, do we have to? Do we have to take our ethics from dogs? Yeah. You know, maybe we don't. You know, maybe we can do a better job. Yeah, and it's uh, it's actually interesting. Uh, two things you, you mentioned. One is. Um, how our view of status and dominance is what's directing this form of training. And that form of training actually quite frequently says anthropomorphism is bad, even though uh -huh. I just, that mm -hmm. just dawned on me as you're speaking. That's, that's very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the second thing, I remember seeing a study about, um, how wolf pups play and learn. And I, I, it might have been from Mark Beckoff or Michael Fox, someone mm -hmm. of that ilk, um, talking about exclusion. So they don't bite or, or nip to, to say you've done wrong. They exclude from play. They say, you crossed mm -hmm. the line and now you don't get to play with us, more or less. You know, you would, one would hope that, you know, television personalities you know, may want to access some of this stuff before disseminating information. Um, I'm <laughs> <laughs> My shtick has always been media sensationalism, and it started out with coyotes. So, I, you're you're preaching to the choir on that one. Yeah. But uh, the media is about short headlines and uh, you know, 32 minute solutions to problems yeah. that have taken years to develop. I mean, some of the stuff that you you get on TV really reads almost like sort of. A you know, a, a satire, you know, kind of a satire onion piece or something, you know, that, that dogs are dreaming up all this stuff. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I think one thing you want to put to these types of people who insist on this stuff is, well, you know, I'm, you know, I and many like me, we've been training and modifying behavior, including really severe types of problems for decades without hurting dogs and without scaring them, how do you account for that? You know, and how do you account for if, you know, if I, you know, train a dog to not guard his food, you know, using really simple Pavlovian conditioning, how do you, what, what happened to his status? Did, did I change his status? Or, or, you know, like what, you know, they, there's a lot of sort of questions that never get asked. You know, so, you know, what's going on there? If dogs are, you know, in this raw pursuit of status, um, how do you account for being able to very simply using, you know, undergrad psychology principles, get them to do other stuff? Might it be that that was, you know, what sort of driving it in the first place that, you know, dogs are eating food because food tastes good. Dogs are guarding resources because, you know, it, it's a behavior that has been selected um, you know, and it may not be about something else. Mm -hmm. I think that's a common theme in many uh, sciences these days, especially, uh, again, with our work looking at issues on trapping and hunting and conservation, is challenging that status quo and saying, could it be this instead? Uh, but then you get a massive pushback from, from an established mindset. Um, yeah. And that's and one of the problems with dominance. Dominance is non-falsifiable. Um, you know, I've, I've been around, you know, people who are very about dominance in dogs or wolves. Um, and if you talk to them about it and they'll say, you know, you can tell that such and such is the dominant animal because he does X. Uh, and then if you watch and you say, well, wait a second, you know, why is doing that instead? Um, 
you know, what's going on there, they have sort of a, a clause that they can insert and they go, well, today, you know, there, you know, there's been a role reversal or, um, you know, so the dominant animal lets him do that sometimes. They, they've always got an explanation. If you've got a, an observation that contradicts the model, um, they never sort of question the model. They just say, well, you know, here's another clause to make sure that my belief system stays intact. So I think that it's not something that's likely to topple very soon. So I think you know, our tack might need to be, and this is what I do with owners, by the way, if I'm, you know, somebody is, is very, very, you know, embedded in this, I won't contradict them. I'll just say, well, you know, wow, you know, you know, could be, could be not. I mean, sometimes it's, I think, necessary to judiciously bust myths. And sometimes I think you need to choose your battles. And I think if somebody's really, you know, absolutely not going to you know, disengage, you can certainly say something like, you know, it could be, you know, it could be that's what's going on. Here's how we're going to modify it. And I would just kind of sidestep it all together um, and get them sort of doing the, the right thing, even if for the wrong reasons. Um, so that can be, you know, and then in the greater sort of picture, chip away at, you know, whether this is a useful model. I mean, because there's two needs for any kind of models. One is it needs to be true, and that one I think is up for grabs um, or accurate. And the second one is, well, is it useful? And I'm not sure it's really pointed us towards anything productive in terms of uh, behavior modification. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Beaver dams help clean water, promote songbird diversity, encourage fish populations, and create better soil and a cleaner environment. Beavers are good for Canada, but will we be good to them? Find out more at FurBearerDefenders.com and give a damn about beavers. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more from best-selling author, behaviorist, and dog trainer, Gene Donaldson. Speaking of behavior modification and uh, uh, evolution and whatnot, there's still a lot of talk about the predatory behavior of dogs. Um, and you do explore this uh, throughout much of your work, talking about sort of engaging some of those innate instincts, uh, which I suppose is redundancy, but that's okay. Um uh, that's my bad, by the way. Uh, not enough coffee. <laughs> All instincts are innate. Um, so why is it important to engage some of these natural behaviors 
uh, in dogs? And, and how do you identify which ones are natural for some dogs? That's a great question. I mean, there's a couple of, of reasons. Um, one is a basic sort of ethics and welfare issue, um, which is that if you were a zoo and you had a certain species and you gave them a very barren environment where their basic nutritional needs were met and they got veterinary care, but they weren't able to engage in any of their species' normal behavior patterns. That zoo would quite rightly come under fire for failure to provide an enriched environment. Zoos take great, great pains to allow animals to, to do what they're wired to do. And it's considered deeply unethical to sort of not allow animals to, to engage in what they've, they've been basically selected over multiple generations to do. So there's the welfare angle, which is, boy, so dogs are supposed to be our best friends. And if we're going to slam the door on every single thing that they feel the urge to do, it's very much like saying, okay, um, you know, Michael, um, no more movies, no more sporting events, um, you know, you can't walk your dog, you, you can't, you know, you know, you name your top sort of five recreational activities, the things you live for. And if I, pr you know, pronounce them behavior problems, you know, I think that there's, you know, there's, there's a cruelty there. Um, the second one is practical. Um, and that is that if dogs are, you know, especially young dogs, they're, they're athletic, they're, they're energized, they, they have a, a certain amount of, you know, behavioral dollars that they're going to spend every day. Um, and, uh, you know, at the root of a good many so-called behavior problems is boredom. Um, you know, uh, it, dogs are not trying to dominate us, but they certainly don't have enough to do. And so if you're an animal who's, um, if they, you know, in pretty recent past were making a living via some combination of scavenging and hunting, um, and you start giving that species free food, they're going to have time on their hands. Um, and so I think one of the ways that we can, you know, do a good job of you know, as a first line of defense against behavior problems and as a, a primary uh, basic behavioral wellness intervention is to say, okay, so what are, you know, and it's pretty well known, here are the action patterns of dogs. Um, they have to do with this, this, and this. And are there any that we can do in a fashion that we consider to be appropriate and legal and okay, and then let the dog do this. Um, and the other one I have to say, I mean, there's sort of a third one that's, I don't think even parenthetical that, you know, if we're choose, those of us who choose to live with dogs, it's because they're dogs. And to be able to sort of witness the full richness, all the things that dogs can do, I think that's part of the beauty of dogs and part of our, our you know, remarkable relationship is that they can be themselves, we can be ourselves, and yet it still works. I took away from that, that it would be cruel for someone to not let me drink beer. I think it would be worse than cruel. I mean, if that's one of your primary action patterns, you know, we may want to get ethicists on board. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm definitely saving this interview for the future. <laughs> uh, leading behaviorists, say. Um, <laughs> now, if I, I'd like to, we had a couple of questions from uh, from listeners and supporters. Um, so I'm going to throw these at you without any preparation. Um some of them were rather ridiculous coming from my friends, such as, <laughs> should you train your dog to be a ninja or a pirate? And Excellent. we're going to ignore, yeah, well, clearly it's a, it's an, a pirate. I, I don't even think we need to go over that one. <laughs> I, I vote yes. All right. Um, now this, this one I thought was very good. Uh, and this is something I struggle with personally. Um, and that's, uh, 
I'm curious as to how Jean handles seeing people be rough with their dogs, uh, leash pops, use of fear, intimidation, etc. Would you address it in the moment? And this is assuming it's someone you've run into on the street or in a park, not in the structure of a, an obedience or a class. That's a great question. Um, it, it is still legal to do this stuff. Um, um, and so, and I'm not sure much good comes from confrontation. Um, I, yeah, I, I know many people and my students, my grads, people I know, trainers I know, I mean, we all, there, there's, a, there's a real serious syndrome of burnout among trainers, especially trainers who really are trying to be progressive because they're basically in a culture where around them it is perfectly fine to do this stuff. It really is kind of Orwellian to be, look around and, and see somebody able to do that. It really is as though you were transported back to the time of Dickens and it was okay to hang children for petty theft and so on. Um, and, and so I, I worry about the effect of that kind of stuff on especially sort of, you know, the, the young talent people coming up who are idealistic, who do want to change the world, and yet it, it's very disheartening. So there's a couple of issues. One is, okay, there's that dog, but I'm raising the other issue, which is the effect on my trainers. I mean, I worry very much about that. Um, and so I think that there's a number of things. One is it usually is not effective to go and try and, you know, publicly shame somebody. I, I don't think that's a, a, a worthwhile approach. One of my students is actually, she is a social worker in her former life, and she came up with, I think, the best possible strategy, in which is, she said, to be an extremely obvious and public witness, which is to not hide on your face, you know, that your, your concern or your horror, and to watch and to look and to make sure, you know, whoever it is doing this is aware that you're watching this and to do it in a very sort of authentic manner. It saves you from having potentially horrible confrontation, um, which is not going to change this person's mind in most cases. And in fact, it may drive them underground, etc. It's usually not going to help that dog. Um, uh, what might is to give them a dose of of sort of a mirror of whoa what's that looking like you can do that um, if they if they then engage um, you know just to try and keep your cool um, and and certainly if you can do you know sometimes if you're feeling up to it you know a charm offensive something like you know wow you know I see you're having difficulty you know with 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 your dog um, uh, as it happens you know I'm I'm a behavior analyst or I'm a trainer or I'm a behaviorist you know uh, can I help you. You know, ask them if they would like help and see if they open the door. Um, if they open the door, walk through it. Um, so if they say, you know, I need to do this because they say, yeah, you know, he looks actually really scared. Um, you know, I know you don't want to scare him. Um, you know, might, you know, would you, do you, you know, what is it that you're, you're trying to get done? You know, and, you know, and sometimes you might be able to get to you, did you know there's another way? And, and, and I've occasionally said to people, and I've actually, you know, said it publicly, um, you know, I apologize on behalf of my profession for failing to get it sacked together and get out a coherent educational method. In other words, I think we all, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the TV dog trainers who are, are, you know, doing egregious 1970s style dog training, it's at kind of all of our doorstep that, that it happened. I mean, of course, you know, we tried and we lost to have it not happen, but I think to fall on our swords, it can be a useful strategy because I think there is some culpability um, that we have not, I mean, the bottom line is we have not been effective and owners are by and large getting the trickle down from a very mixed message at best from the experts. 
That's a excellent answer. Um, I was going to say hit them. <laughs> you can do that too. <laughs> yeah. Well, violence always ends well. Yeah, that's right. right. I, yeah, I, certainly. Historically, it's gonna reduce, it does. It's going to reduce future violence. <laughs> There's a book, by the um, way, your listeners, if they've not already read it, and and I think people who are um, on the front lines in in animal rights and animal welfare causes, if you know, in terms of sort of burnout risk, you know, you're talking high burnout risk. Uh, Steven Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature, where he does a survey, a sweeping, towering survey of the trends in violence um, across all domains, everything from organized violence, warfare, to societal, to cultural, to laws, to the various civil rights movements. Um, uh, and he quantifies it brilliantly that, you know, I think that those of us who are in animal, the animal, um, you know, uh, uh, welfare and animal rights uh, domains, that we are certainly, you know, yeah, our day is coming, um, that, that you know, the, the trend is really clear. And it's one that you can read that book and think, boy, you know, we're, I'm part of sort of a much bigger kind of global phenomenon. Um, and that, you know, the good guys are going to win. Uh, that's basically his message. And he, he makes a really good case for that. Excellent. Um, well, I'm going to make sure I look that one up when we're, when we're done chatting. Uh, and, and speaking of uh, rough behavior, and I think you you talk a little bit about this in in some of the books um is reactivity uh i'll i'll ask you if you can provide a quick definition of that but the question is if you have noticed an increase in reactivity in urban dogs and whether or not there's a reason for this increase this comes from a trainer uh who who the, uh, herself has seen a perceived increase uh in the issue of reactivity in urban dogs I have not, um, and I. It could be that there is. It could be that there there isn't. Uh, I would be cautious about interpreting one's own perception as evidence of a trend. Um, uh, that you know, in, in certainly reactivity is very salient. Certainly now we've got better technology to deal with it. Um, uh, certainly now people are. Um, you know, more packed into urban environments. There are more dogs in urban environments. So it could be. Um, but I think before we say, so what's, you know, what's causing the effect that we need to know whether there is an effect. And I don't know if anybody's looked at that. And to my knowledge, nobody has actually tried to, you know, figure it out. I mean, what's the baseline? In other words, well, what was the incidence of reactivity before? You know, so in other words, clinical impression of one practitioner, we may want to be a little more cautious. Um, reactivity, I think by most people's definition, and that is something where when somebody says the word reactivity, you do want to define it because it could mean different things to different people. The way that it's used that I've mostly seen is basically it's a dog who um, you haven't really talked about why. So there's different differing motivations that could be causing it but what you've got is a dog who especially when on leash or behind a barrier so behind a fence um, goes off at either people or dogs so be you know puts on some sort of big barking lunging growling display um, uh, towards either people or dogs or both um, and what that do dog does off leash is is sort of still up for grabs so in other words there may or may not be concurrent issues with the dog when he's at liberty excellent um yeah and that's i've had reactive dogs in the past and it's the damnedest thing you think the dog's trying to kill someone uh seeing another yeah. dog across the street or something he walks over sniffs him once and then he's fine and that was just yep sometimes they sometimes they are sometimes they, they sometimes they do want to rumble and sometimes they're just 
frustrated. Yeah, yeah, and that's what it was in his case. I think that the problem had been too much time at an off-leash park and not enough time on-leash. So he got used to being able to go up and see other dogs. And then when he's on-leash, you say, why the hell can't I go see this dog? Um, Yeah, and you can teach teach them, you know, if you are polite, if you you behave thusly, you will get to go visit more dogs. And they say, oh, okay. Well, now keep in mind, this was a big black and tan dog in a, uh, a relatively affluent community of small white fluffy dogs. <laughs> um, so, yeah, people didn't want to play with us. But uh, now one of the other questions that came up, and this this is kind of a two-parter because there's two different people who asked very similar questions. One was, very simply, how do I stop my dog from pulling? Um, and I think this is a case where various methods have been tried to be taught uh you know from teaching how to heal uh with treats to um you know simply the the pull stop sit pull stop sit sort of method and then the secondary question was from someone else who asked about um why people who struggle with pulling dogs aren't using harnesses and i will say i've got a harness uh one of my girls she's uh a hound mix she's a Hound Shepherd Lab is the best guess. Is that the one um, in the photograph on your Skype? Yes. Oh, yes. she's lovely. She is. Um, she's very rambunctious at times. Um, but she, uh, you know, I adopted her from the Humane Society. They identified her as a hound at the shelter. She had a, a front attachment harness. And I tried her on a back harness for a while, but... It didn't do it, so we walk on a front attachment harness, and she does great. If I try walking her on just a collar, uh, it's the end of times, yeah. pretty much. <laughs> so it's, uh, that's my experience with, with these. And again, yeah. it's understanding the, the individual dog. But uh, yeah. So broad sweeping declaration, how do we stop dogs from pulling? I mean, my personally, you know, there's a couple of ways. You can train, okay, which is, um, you know, labor intensive, or you can change gear. Um, and changing gear like you did, there's now very humane. So in other words, it doesn't work by hurting the dog. It works by sort of making the dog, you know, end up facing kind of the wrong way, which they prefer not to. So there's not violence, there's not pain, there's not fear involved. Um, and you can dramatically reduce the pull so I vote gear, um, and there's a couple of pieces of gear. One is a head halter, kind of the similar thing as a hackamore on a horse. The downside of those is some dogs don't take to them easily. You have to take time to get them used to it, and some people don't have that kind of patience. Uh, and the other one is a front clip harness. Um, a back clip harness is definitely not the way to go. That's how you would probably facilitate pulling. But a front clip harness, and there's a bunch of different brands, and there's ever more you know, brands and technology there. That's the way to go. If you just want sort of, you know, and it's, there's no reason not to just put on the, the, the gear that, that reduces the pulling and enjoy your walk. Excellent. That's, uh, that, that's pretty much what I ended up doing too. Um, she will, uh, we did the, the stop and sit frequently and that helped in that if she's pulling, I can stop and she'll sit like that. Yeah. That's what she, she did not pick up on the, I'm pulling, yeah. so we're stopping. She picked up on the, we're stopping, so I'm sitting. Which translating that to sort of continuous no pulling, you know, is, is something that, you know, dog trainers can do with, you know, uh, um, if you give a dog trainer enough time, they can definitely fix that. But there's a lot of nuance there. Um, and I worry about 
trying to get people because of, you know, worthiness and the word should and you should train your dog to do that kind of extremely labor intensive activity with their dog when they could just fix it with gear and take the time that they save to have fun with their dog. Uh, so I much prefer, you know, your solution. And by the way, as I'm looking at her, she's got beautiful flu, you know, the kind of floppy lips, you know, that the hound flus, they're, they're really excellent. Yeah. We started doing a little bit of uh, tracking training yeah, uh, yeah. and she, well, so my girlfriend, she's, she's involved in a lot of agility on one of the performance teams sponsored by President's Choice. So she's been taking her to agility training oh, and she, lo- oh, you should see her go. She loves it. it I'll, I'll shoot you the video later. It's, it's funny. Um, just the look of joy on her face. Yeah. But, um, no, I just started doing that in the apartment is three boxes with little holes in them. One has a treat, mix them up. She lies down in front of the one and she gets a treat. Yeah. yeah. It's the greatest game on the planet. Perfect. A wonderful um, game. Um, perfect. And I've got one final question, uh, and then I'll let you get back to your day. One of the things that comes up frequently, uh, and again, in a multi-dog household like, like ours, uh, I'd imagine in training schools with certain television hosts, is the concept of immediacy um, for a dog. And this is something, and again, in, in a multi-dog household, we are constantly reminding each other of this because we want to <laughs> assign blame sometimes uh, for inappropriate behavior. Um, yeah. And there always has to be one rational person. Um, but on, again, certain television broadcasters, they almost touch on this, but then they kind of blur the line. And I just, can you uh, explain maybe how it is the dogs perceive time and action reaction because I feel like that might be yeah. at the root of so many issues when it comes to dog training, to humane yeah. behavior, to ethical training, to all of these related issues that we've touched on today. Yeah, I mean, boy, that's a good question. I, you know, I've been asked a billion questions in my career, and I've never had been asked that. You know, had it framed that way. How do dogs perceive time? Wow, I, I you know, I'm not sure I'm qualified. <laughs> uh, I, I well, you're you're on the line, so you got to answer. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm going to come up yeah. with something here. Um, so a couple of things. One is it's not true that dogs don't have memory. Okay, so sometimes you know, so let's talk about the one that, that you know, the old chestnut that gets brought up, which is you come home, the dog has had an accident, and he's acting guilty. Okay, before you punch him, so he understands that. Um, you know, that what he did an hour earlier. And he's remembering that and he's feeling guilty. Therefore, you know, late punish, go ahead and, and, you know, give him a late punishment. We have, thir- that's been thoroughly debunked. We, you know, dog, the dog does not feel guilt. He feels afraid. Okay, he's learned. Dogs are extremely good at fine discriminations. There are dogs that can tell, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, the, the, the certain time of day plus Clicking on the TV remote means for the next 90 minutes, there's going to be nothing for dogs. Dogs learn about, they learn about computers. They learn about people getting up from computers. They learn about, you know, dogs with separation anxiety learn the departure cues that predict long versus short absences. They, you know, they, they, they don't understand that, oh my God, she's doing her hair. Um, but they do know the difference between, you know, if you, if she blow dries her hair versus she doesn't, there's going to be a long absence that they pick up on that stuff and it predicts something for them. So it's meaningful. So dog, it's not at all surprising that dogs can also detect when people come home, they can detect she just came home. It smells like feces in here. I always get punished. 
When the dog was was having the accident an hour earlier, nothing happened. Okay, so that action and the product are not related the way that we can sort of link them with language. But the dog can feel fearful later and we interpret that as guilt. That is something that dogs cannot do. But that's not to say that they don't have memories because people say, well, the dog can't remember anything. Because if you say that animal has no memory, then, then you've basically said, well, they can't learn. And it's clear that dogs can learn both from um, associations. They can learn, you know, what predicts what. They can also learn, you know, that sit works, which of course, of course has a prerequisite of memory. Um, so, you know, in terms of how they perceive time, I know they do. Dogs are very good. They can estimate time. There are dogs who who can estimate about when their owner's going to come home. There are dogs who can estimate in the short term. You know, if you, there's been all kinds of research done that if you, um, you know, they, they do something and a certain amount of time goes by and then something else happens, that they can learn to estimate those time intervals. There are dogs who can estimate that it's, um, you know, the night that they go to obedience class. And in the macro and the micro sense, they estimate time durations really well. How they experience it subjectively Boy, that's a that's a good question, and I'm, I, bet, I wonder if some of the dog cognition people have thought about the subjective experience of time issue because that one I, I'm, I'm I'm I don't have the goods on. Well, and that's uh, I mean to me it's it's very clear that they have some understanding again from observation, uh, and, and what you said is very true. I'll I'll get up and go put on a hoodie if it gets cold because again here in Ontario it gets cold not like sunny California or Vancouver where my colleagues are mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. sending me pictures of wildflowers while there's still snow out. Um I had the air conditioner on this morning. Uh, <laughs> I hate you people. Uh there's actually a bit of snow this morning just so you know. Anyway, um so they they know the difference between that and me putting on the sweater I wear when we go outside. Mm-hmm. Um, they, yeah. they understand when my girlfriend leaves in the morning, uh, she's coming back. You know, it's no big deal. They all just lay around or play or do whatever they're doing. And, yep. uh, come the end of the day, they all start positioning themselves around the door because when she gets home, they That's get right. fed. Um, yes. but then if she leaves in the middle of the day on a weekend or if she's working from home, they get very confused and very concerned. That's different. Exactly. So yes. to me, it's. It's obvious that they understand mm-hmm. that time sort of has a, a, a linear uh, expansion to it. Uh, yeah. Maybe not yeah. in those words, but uh, there, yeah. there is an understanding there. But uh, and oh, yeah. so I really want to thank you again, though, uh, just as we wrap this up, for, for joining us, but also for all the work you've done over the years in exploring these humane positive reinforcement methods for going out and speaking out against some of these cruel methods um again i i was on the board of directors at humane society i've been involved with animal welfare for some time now and i've seen the horrific things that happen as a result um and i know there are so many trainers out there who love what you do and admire what you do uh including my myself and my girlfriend and we just want to make sure that you're very very aware how much we support your work and how much we appreciate it Thanks so much. That is very good to hear. And I do want to take the opportunity to thank you for what you guys are doing. Um, I, 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 to this day, I, I almost hit people when I see them wearing fur, which is kind of like what you want to do when you hear somebody, see somebody being wearing a dog. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the problem with the job, but, um, yeah, you, you learn. How can it be in 2015? I mean, how can it be? Uh, I could, 
I do talk about it for hours, actually. <laughs> um, professionally, even. Uh, it's I, I can't answer that in five seconds. Yeah. But I do know we will see the day mm-hmm. uh, when it doesn't happen anymore. I have absolute faith in that certainty. Me too. To learn more about Jean's work, her books, training methods, or ongoing works, visit her website at academyfordogtrainers.com. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank Jean for spending time with us. I'd also like to thank Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support of this program. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.